This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Hope Expels Fear. In the first half, Jeffrey R. Holland shares his address, Terror, Triumph, and a Wedding Feast. Then in the second half, Kevin J. Worthen speaks on the process and power of hope. There have always been challenges in every age and dispensation. But yesterday, September 11th, was the third anniversary of a violent and near unimaginable event that rocked the whole world. Indeed, the aftermath of that act has dramatically and perhaps permanently affected many of the ways in which the world now lives. Perhaps with such an anniversary yesterday, and we rightfully have heard so much about it, perhaps the fears and concerns of our modern times are still in your hearts today. In any case, certainly your neighbors, the citizens of the nations to the world in which we're beaming this broadcast tonight, those nations have, since September 11, 2001, been dangling off balance, have been made more fearful, have been alarmed by international events and the almost wholesale new use of the word terror. Not many years ago, that word was reserved almost entirely for B-grade movie advertisements and Stephen King novels. Now, sadly, it is daily fare in our newspapers and so common in conversation that even young children, including, and this season especially, the school children of Russia, are conscious that the world in which we live can be brutally criminally affected by people called terrorists. And there are disasters of other kinds, natural and otherwise, about which we've been reading so much. These are documented in the news and remind us that life can be fragile, that life can present fateful turns of events. Against that backdrop, I know that many of you have wondered in your hearts what all of this means regarding the end of the world and your life in it. Many have asked, is this the hour of the second coming of the Savior and all that's prophesied concerning that event? Indeed, sometime not long after the 9-11 incident, I had a missionary ask me, in all honesty, full of faith, Elder Holland, are these the last days? I saw the earnestness in his face and some of the fear in his eyes. And I wanted to be reassuring. I thought perhaps an arm around him and some humor could relieve his anxiety a little. Giving him a hug, I said, Elder, I may not be the brightest person alive, but even I know the name of the Church. We then talked about being Latter-day Saints. I said, Yes, Elder, we're in the last days, but there's really nothing that new about it. The promised second coming of the Savior began with the first vision of the prophet Joseph Smith in 1820. So we already have about 184 years of experience seeing the second coming and the last days unfold. And we can be certain we're in the last days, years and years of them, I said. And I gave him a friendly shake of the hand and sent him on his way. He smiled seemed more reassured to put this in some context, and went on his way. I assume he has long since finished a successful mission 
and is now happily at home getting on with his life, perhaps even sitting in this audience somewhere looking for a wife. <laughs> I hasten to say that I do know what this young man was really asking. What he really meant was, Elder Holland, will I finish my mission? Is there any point in getting an education? Can I hope for a marriage? Do I have a future? Is there any happiness ahead for me? And I say to you, all of you, what I said to him three years ago, yes, of course, certainly, to all those questions. As far as the actual timing of the final publicly witnessed Second Coming itself and its earth-shaking events, I do not know when that will happen. Furthermore, President Hinckley has said that he doesn't know when it will happen, and that is because no one knows when it will happen. The Savior said that even the angels in heaven would not know. We should watch for the signs and read the meaning of the seasons. We should live as faithfully as we possibly can. And we should share the gospel with everyone so that blessings and protections will be available to all. But we cannot and must not be paralyzed just because that event and events surrounding it are out there ahead of us somewhere. We cannot stop living life. Indeed, we should live life more fully than we've ever lived it before. After all, this is the dispensation of the fullness of times. I say this because in recent times, post 9-11 times, I suppose, I've heard very fearful, even dismal opinions coming from some in your age group regarding the questions that missionary had in mind. I've heard some of you say that you wonder whether there's any purpose in going on a mission or getting an education or planning for a career if the world we live in is going to be so uncertain. I've even heard sweethearts say, we don't know whether we should get married in such uncertain times. Worst of all, I've heard reports of some newlyweds questioning whether they should bring children into a terror-filled world on the brink of latter-day cataclysms. May I tell you that, in a way, those kinds of attitudes worry me more than Al-Qaeda worries me. I have just two things to say to any of you who are troubled about the future. I say it lovingly and from my heart. First, we must never in any age or circumstance let fear and the father of fear, Satan himself, divert us from faith and faithful living. There have always been questions about the future. Every young person, every young couple in every era has had to walk by faith into what has always been some uncertainty, starting with Adam and Eve in those first tremulous steps out of the Garden of Eden. But that's all right. That's the plan. It will be okay. Just be faithful. God is in charge. He knows your name. He knows your need. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the first principle of the gospel. And it says in President Daly's hymn commemorating our pioneers of the past, faith in every footstep. But like those pioneers, you do have to keep taking them 
one step and then another and then the next. That's how tasks are accomplished. That's how goals are achieved. That's how frontiers are conquered. In more divine language, that is how worlds are created. And it's how your world will be created. God expects you to have enough faith and determination, enough trust in Him to keep moving, keep living, keep rejoicing. In fact, He expects you not simply to face the future. That sounds pretty grim and stoic. He expects you to embrace it and shape it, to love it and rejoice in it and delight in your opportunities. God is anxiously waiting for the chance to answer your prayers and fulfill your dreams, just as He always has. But He can't if you don't pray, and He can't if you don't dream. In short, He can't if you don't believe. Drawing upon my vast background of children's bedtime stories, you can pick your poultry. You can either be like Chicken Little and run about shouting, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, or you can be like the little red hen and forge ahead with the productive tasks of living, regardless of who does or doesn't help you or who does or doesn't believe just the way you believe. So much for farmyard stories. How about two scriptures? both directed at those who live in perilous times. The first is from section 101 of the Doctrine and Covenants. If you recall, this revelation came as the saints who were gathered in Missouri were suffering great persecution, the very height of their persecution. Mobs had driven them from their homes. Hostility, even hatred, followed them from county to county as they sought refuge. These frightened saints lost land, livestock, clothing, furniture, crops, a host of personal possessions. Threats of death were heard every day. I suppose at its worst, this was the most difficult and dangerous time, may I say terror-filled time, that the Church had ever known. Later on, phrases like Hans Mill and Liberty Jail would take their place in our vocabulary forever. Yet in that frightening time, the Lord said to His people, Let your hearts be comforted concerning Zion, for all flesh is in mine hands. Be still and know that I am God. Zion shall not be moved out of her place, notwithstanding her children are scattered. They that remain and are pure in heart shall return and come to their inheritances, they and their children, with songs of everlasting joy to build up the waste places of Zion, and all these things that the prophets might be fulfilled. So my young friends, let your hearts be comforted concerning Zion, and remember the most fundamental definition of Zion we have ever been given, those who are pure in heart. If you will keep your hearts pure, you and your children and your grandchildren shall sing songs of everlasting joy as you build up Zion, and you shall not be moved out of your place. The other verse I refer to is from the Savior, spoken to His disciples. As He faced His crucifixion 
and as they faced fear, disarray, and persecution. Talk about troubled times. In his last collective counsel to them in mortality, and knowing full well what lay ahead for him and for them, he said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In a world of tribulation, and there will always be plenty of it, let's remember our faith. Let's recall the other promises and prophecies that have been given, all the reassuring ones, and let's live life more fully with more boldness and courage than any other time in our history. Christ has overcome the world and made straight a path for us in the wilderness. He has said to us in our day, Gird up your loins and be prepared. Behold, the kingdom is yours, and the enemy shall not overcome. So let's gird up. Let's get some gusto into singing those songs of everlasting joy. Now that leads directly to the other related point that I want to make regarding the day in which you and I live. We are, as we have said, latter-day saints. But in times of anxiety, we tend to focus pretty much, like my young missionary friend did, on the latter-day part of that title. Tonight, I issue a call to each of you to concentrate on the saint portion of that phrase. That is the element in our church title that should be demanding our attention, our attention now. Think of the blessings we enjoy. Think of the remarkable age in which we live. Think of the economic and educational, scientific and spiritual blessings we have as no other era or people in the history of the world have ever had. And then consider the responsibility we have to live worthily in our moment in time. We are making our appearance on the stage of mortality in the greatest dispensation of the gospel ever given to mankind, and we need to make the most of it. Here's a favorite quote of mine from the prophet Joseph Smith. The building up of Zion is a cause that has interested the people of God in every age. It is a theme upon which prophets, priests, and kings have dwelt with peculiar delight. They have looked forward with joyful anticipation unto the day in which we live, and fired with heavenly and joyful anticipations, they have sung and written and prophesied of this our day. We are the favored people that God has chosen to bring about the latter-day glory. Note this similar affirmation from Wilford Woodruff in 1894. Perhaps I do not need to remind you of the staggering challenges President Woodruff faced. Those years here in the West were, I suppose, every bit as fearful in their own way as were the ones I described in Missouri. 
prophets in seclusion, apostles in prison, fear, in President Woodruff's own words, that the whole nation was turning against our people, preparing to make war upon the Church. Nevertheless, he said in the midst of such troubles, The Almighty is with this people. We shall have all the revelations that we will need if we will do our duty and obey the commandments of God. While I live, I want to do my duty, he said. I want the Latter-day Saints to do their duty. Their responsibility is great and mighty. The eyes of God and all the holy prophets are watching us. This is the great dispensation that has been spoken of ever since the world began. We are gathered together by the power and commandment of God. We're doing the work of God. Let us fill our mission. Lastly, this from President Hinckley, our modern prophet, who currently guides us through the challenging times of our present hour. Citing just last April conference, that very theme struck by President Woodruff, he said to all of us, We of this generation are the end harvest of all that has gone before. It's not enough simply to be known as a member of the Church. A solemn obligation rests upon us. Let us face it and work at it. We must live as true followers of the Christ, with charity toward all, returning good for evil, teaching by example the ways of the Lord, and accomplishing the vast service He has outlined for us. May we live worthy of the glorious endowment of light and understanding and eternal truth which has come to us through all the perils of the past. Somehow, among all who have walked the earth, we've been brought forth in this unique and remarkable season. Be grateful, and above all, be faithful. It's interesting to me that in those three quotes over a representative period of time, our prophets have focused not on the terror of the times in which they lived and not on the ominous elements of the latter days in which we are all living, but they felt to speak of the opportunity and blessing and, above all, the responsibility to seize the privileges afforded us in this greatest of all dispensations. I love the line from the prophet Joseph saying that earlier prophets, priests, and kings have looked forward with joyful anticipation to the day in which we live and have sung and written and prophesied of this our day. What were they so joyful about? I can assure you they weren't concentrating on terror and tragedy. Brother Woodruff's words were, quote, The eyes of God and all the holy prophets are watching us. This is the great dispensation which has been spoken of ever since the world began. And, President Hinckley, just to repeat, through all the perils of the past, somehow, among all who have walked the earth, we have been brought forth in this unique and remarkable season. Be grateful. Above all, be faithful. I don't know how all of that makes you feel, but suddenly any undue anxiety about the times in which we live dissipates for me. And I am humbled and spiritually thrilled, motivated, 
at the opportunity we have been given. God is watching over his world, his church, his leaders, and he is certainly watching over you. Let's just make sure we are the pure in heart and that we are faithful. How blessed you will be, how fortunate your children and grandchildren will be. Think about it. No earlier people down through the gospel ages, including our own parents in many cases, have had anywhere near the blessings that you and I have been given. Think of the help we've been given to take the light of the gospel to a darkened world. We have approximately 55,000 missionaries. Obviously, in our day, far more than in any other age in the history of the world since time began. And that number is repeated every two years by those going out to replace their predecessors. We need more. We have an LDS presence in some 170 countries. We publish our scriptures in more than 100 languages. Add all the elements of education, science, technology, communication, transportation, medicine, nutrition, the revelations that surround us, and we begin to realize what the angel Moroni meant when he said repeatedly to the boy prophet Joseph Smith, quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel, that in the last days God would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, and that the whole world, all humankind, would be blessed by the light coming in all fields of endeavor as part of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We consider all these blessings that we have in our dispensation, and we pause to say to our Father in heaven, How great thou art, and how good thou art. In fact, I have a theory about those earlier dispensations and the leaders and families and people who lived then, of which the Prophet Joseph and President Woodruff and President Hinckley spoke. I've thought often about them, those earlier times, and the destructive circumstances that confronted them. They faced terribly difficult times, and for the most part, in any other dispensation, they did not succeed. Apostasy and darkness eventually came to every earlier age in human history. Indeed, the whole point of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days is that it had not been able to survive in earlier times and therefore had to be pursued in one last triumphant age. We know the challenges Abraham's posterity faced and still do. We know of Moses' problems with an Israelite people who left Egypt but couldn't quite get Egypt to leave them. Isaiah was the prophet that saw the loss of the ten Israelite tribes to the north. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel were all prophets of captivity. Peter, James, and John, and Paul, the great figures of the New Testament, all saw apostasy creeping into their world almost before the Savior had departed, and certainly while they themselves were still living. Think of the prophets of the Book of Mormon, a dispensation ending with such painful communication between Mormon and Moroni about the plight they faced and the people they loved dissolving into chaos, terror, and corruption. In short, 
apostasy and destruction of one kind or another was the ultimate fate of every general dispensation we have ever had down through time. But here's my theory. My theory is that those great men and women, the leaders in those ages past, were able to keep going, to keep testifying, to keep trying to do their best, not because they knew they would succeed, but because they knew that you would. I believe they took courage and hope, not so much from their own circumstances as from yours. A magnificent congregation of young adults like you tonight, gathered by the hundreds of thousands around the world in a determined effort to see the gospel prevail and triumph. Moroni said once, speaking to us who would receive his record in the last days, Behold, the Lord hath shown unto me great and marvelous things concerning that which must shortly come. At that day, when these things shall come forth among you, behold, I speak unto you as if ye were present, and yet ye are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know your doing. One way or another, I think virtually all the prophets and early apostles had their visionary moments of our time, a view which gave them courage in their own less successful eras. Those early brethren knew an amazing amount about us. Prophets such as Moses and Nephi and the brother of Jared saw the latter days in tremendously detailed vision. Some of what they saw wasn't pleasing. But surely all those earlier generations took heart from knowing that there would finally be one dispensation that would not fail. Ours, not theirs, was the day that gave them heavenly and joyful anticipations and let them sing and prophesy of victory. Ours is the day, collectively speaking, toward which the prophets have been looking from the beginning of time. And those earlier brethren are over there now, still yet, cheering us on in a very real way, their chance to consider themselves fully successful depends on our faithfulness and our victory. I love the idea of going into battle in the last days representing Alma and Abinadi and what they pled for, representing Peter and Paul and the sacrifices they made. If you can't get excited about that kind of opportunity in the drama of history, you can't get excited. Let me add another element to this view of the dispensation that I think follows automatically. 
Because ours is the last and greatest of all dispensations, because all things will eventually culminate and be fulfilled in our era, there is therefore one particular, very specific responsibility that falls to those of us in the Church now that did not rest quite the same way on the shoulders of Church members in any earlier time. Unlike the Church in the days of Abraham or Moses, Isaiah or Ezekiel, or even the New Testament days of James and John, we have a responsibility to prepare the Church of the Lamb of God to receive the Lamb of God in person, in triumphant glory, in His millennial role as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. No other dispensation ever had that duty. In the language of the scriptures, we are the ones designated in all of history who must prepare the bride for the advent of the bridegroom and be worthy of an invitation to the wedding feast. Collectively speaking, whether it's in our lifetime or our children's or our grandchildren's or whenever, we nevertheless have the responsibility as a church and as individual members of that church to be worthy to have Christ come to us, to be worthy to have Him greet us and accept us and receive us, to be worthy to have Him embrace us. The lives we present to Him in that sacred hour must be worthy of Him. So, setting aside fear of the future or concerns about the dimensions of a backyard bomb shelter, I am filled with awe, with an overwhelming sense of duty to prepare my life, and to the extent that I can, to help prepare the lives of members of the Church, for that long prophesied day, for that transfer of authority, for the time when we will make a presentation of the Church to Him whose Church this is. I do know this that when Christ comes, the members of His Church must look and act like members of His Church, like they're supposed to look and act if we're to be acceptable to Him. We must be doing His work, and we must be living His teachings. He must recognize us quickly. He must recognize us easily as truly being His disciples. As President J. Reuben Clark once said, our faith must not be difficult to detect. Yes, in that great final hour, if we say we are believers, then we surely better be demonstrating it. The shepherd knows his sheep, and we must be known in that great day as his followers in deed as well as word. Surely, that is why President Hinckley said, it's not enough for us, you and me, now in our time, to simply be known as members of the Church. We must live as true followers of Christ. Yes, my beautiful, beloved young friends, yes, these are the latter days. And you and I are to be the best latter day saints we can be. Emphasis on the last word, please. When will all of this finish? 
When shall Christ appear publicly, triumphantly, in the millennium begin? I've already told you I don't know. What I do know is that the initial moments of that event began 184 years ago. I do know that as a result of that first vision and what has followed it, we live in a time of unprecedented blessings, blessings given to us for the purpose of living faithfully and purely so that when the bridegroom finally and triumphantly arrives, he can personally, justifiably bid us to the wedding feast. Is there a happy future for you and your posterity in these latter days? Absolutely, most assuredly, a beautiful future. All wedding feasts are happy occasions. Will there be difficult times when these ominous latter-day warnings and prophecies are fulfilled? Of course there will be. Be prepared. There always have been. Will those built upon the great rock of Christ withstand such winds, such hail, the mighty shafts in the whirlwind? You know they will. You have it on good word. You have it on His word. That rock upon which ye are built is a sure foundation, a foundation wherein if men and women build, they cannot fall. My beloved young brothers and sisters, I leave you love and I leave you testimony. Not only that God lives, but also that He loves us, that He loves you. Everything He does is for our good and our protection. There is evil and sorrow in the world, but there is no evil or harm in Him. He is our Father, a perfect Father, and He will shelter us from the storm. I testify not only that Jesus is the Christ, the holy and only begotten Son of God, but that He lives, that He loves us, that on the strength and merit of His atoning sacrifice, we too will live eternally. He conquered death and hell for us, and He conquered fear in the same way. This is the Church and Kingdom of God on earth. Joseph Smith was a prophet, and Gordon B. Hinckley is a prophet. Truth has been restored. You and I are fortunate enough to be born when all this knowledge and all this safety are available to us. I leave an apostolic blessing on each one of you individually within the sound of my voice that you will live with confidence, optimism, faith, and devotion. I bless you in the name of the Lord that you will be serious about life's challenges but not frightened and never discouraged. I bless you to feel the joy of the saints in the latter days, never to fear crippling anxiety or destructive despair. Indeed, the only concern I would have us entertain is a very personal one. How can I live more fully, more faithfully, so that all the blessings of this great dispensation can be showered upon each one of us and upon those whose lives we touch and teach? Fear not, little flock. Look to Christ in every thought. 
Doubt not, fear not. Ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath prepared for you. Be of good cheer. The kingdom is yours, and the blessings thereof are yours, and the riches of eternity are yours. I leave my blessing, my love, and apostolic witness of the truthfulness of these things in the protective name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Hope Expels Fear. We've just heard from Jeffrey R. Holland. After the break, we'll return with Kevin J. Worthen for The Process and Power of Hope. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Hope Expels Fear. Next is Kevin J. Worthen, President of Brigham Young University at the time of this address, titled The Process and Power of Hope. Ancient Greek mythology includes a story intended to answer the question of why there are problems and evil in the world. It concerns the desire of Zeus, the king of the gods, to exact revenge on Prometheus for stealing fire from the gods and giving it to humans. In one well-known version of the story, Zeus creates Pandora and presents her to Prometheus's brother, Epimetheus. Pandora brings with her a jar, which due to a translation error in the 16th century is now commonly referred to as a box. The jar contained what one ancient poet called countless plagues. Prometheus warns his brother not to accept any gifts from Zeus, but Epimetheus ignored him and accepted Pandora, who immediately opened the jar, scattering its contents throughout the world. Thus wrote the same poet, the evils and seas are full of evils. This story and the use of the term Pandora's box to refer to a multitude of problems and evils is widely known today. What is less well-known is that according to the earliest written record of the myth, there was one item in Pandora's jar that did not escape. That item was hope. As one early version of the story put it, only hope remained there in the great jar and did not fly out at the door, for the lid of the jar stopped her by the will of Zeus. Now, the early prophet did not explain why hope remained in the jar. And scholars have vigorously debated that issue for centuries. Some have suggested that Zeus trapped hope in the jar because he was so angry with Prometheus that he wanted to make sure humans had no access to hope, that he wanted to eliminate any thought that there was a chance that things might improve. Others, including one leading 20th century scholar, believe just the opposite, that hope was kept in the jar so that it was always available to humans. In this reading, the general sense of the story is that because of Pandora, the world is full of ills, but we have one good thing to set against them, hope. That same optimistic view of hope finds expression in a variety of cultures and languages. In many English-speaking countries, we say, hope springs eternal, reaffirming the 18th century poet Alexander Pope's belief that the impulse to hope against all odds is embedded deep in our souls. 
A traditional Russian saying is that hope dies last, which is one Russian explained. It means that as long as you are alive, you have hope. And that even if everything is very, very bad around you, if you have hope, you can survive. Reflecting the same view from the opposite end of things, the Middle Ages poet Dante introduced his travelers to the gates of hell with the stern warning, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. As Elder Holland recently observed, truly, when hope is gone, what we have left is the flame of the inferno raging on every side. Modern and ancient scripture, along with modern and ancient prophets, echo the central importance of hope in our lives. Indeed, Scripture identifies hope as one of the three essential celestializing characteristics, firmly centered between foundational faith and exalting charity. However, despite its place in that elite company, hope often gets less attention in church talks than do its surrounding compatriots. At times, it seems that we view hope as more of a grammatical connector between the two better-known bookends of faith and charity— than we do as an eternal empowering concept whose development is equally central to God's plan for us. So today, at a time and in a circumstance where we might struggle to understand what hope looks like, or even more to know how to draw upon its power in our everyday lives, I would like to spend a few minutes talking about hope, with the hope that my remarks will enhance both our understanding of and our ability to draw strength from this key gospel concept. Part of the reason why our understanding of the concept of hope seems less developed than other essential gospel characteristics is that the word hope has so many meanings in so many different contexts that its central significance sometimes gets lost. For many in today's society, hope seems to be just a weak form of positive thinking. When answering such questions as, Will you get a 4.0 this semester? Will she accept my invitation for a date? Or will I realize my dream of being the first person on Mars? The common, usually hesitant reply of, well, I hope so, seems more like a confession that whatever meager optimism we possess is justified and probably outmatched only by our naivete. However, at other times and in other settings, especially in the gospel context, Hope takes on a much more affirmative and certain role. According to scripture, hope can be an anchor to our souls. It can make us sure and steadfast. The right kind of hope can purify us. Nephi informs us that a perfect brightness of hope is an essential part of the process by which we achieve eternal life. Hope is so central to our eternal progress that according to Moroni, man must hope or he cannot receive an inheritance in the place which Christ has prepared. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell once observed, the hope described in scriptures, what he called real or ultimate hope, quote, it stiffens, not slackens the spiritual spine. It is serene, not giddy, eager without being naive, and pleasantly steady without being smug, close quote. So one step in better understanding hope is to focus on the gospel-centered concept of hope and not the more wishy-washy, weak form of Pollyannish positive thinking to which the world sometimes limits its meaning. But even then, there is a challenge because the scriptures themselves appear to convey somewhat inconsistent views of the role of hope in our eternal progress. 
Some scriptures seem to indicate that we have to have hope before we can have faith, while others, paradoxically, seem to indicate that we have to have faith before we have hope. For example, on the one hand, Hebrews indicates that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, suggesting that faith follows hope, with faith being the celestial affirmation that what one hoped for is in fact true. Mormon seems to suggest the same idea in his sermon in Moroni chapter 7. How is it that ye can attain unto faith, he asks, save ye shall have hope, clearly implying that hope must precede faith. On the other hand, in that same sermon, Mormon informs us that without faith, there cannot be any hope, suggesting that hope comes after faith, confirming what appears to be the progress from faith to hope to charity, which Mormon and Paul suggest is the proper order of celestial development. So, does hope come before or after faith? Is it a predecessor or a product of faith? Let me suggest that the answer to all these questions is yes. Hope comes before and after faith. It is both a predecessor and a product of faith. One possible resolution of this apparent dilemma is to consider the possibility that there are two types or two manifestations of hope, one more developed than the other. The guide to the scripture describes hope as both the confident expectation of and longing for the promised blessings of righteousness. Let me suggest that longing for the promised blessings describes a kind of pre-faith kind of hope, which, while confident expectation, describes a post-faith kind of hope, the hope that is created after faith comes into the equation. Let's call this pre-faith longing for the blessings nascent hope. Nascent being defined as something that is beginning to form or grow. Nascent hope comes into being by our choice, by the exercise of our agency. We must first want to believe, or to use the words of Alma, desire to believe. If we choose to have at least this much hope, enough hope to desire to believe, God can then engender faith in us by giving us an assurance that what we hope for or desire is truly possible. That spiritual assurance of the nascent form of hope is what Paul describes as faith in Hebrews chapter 11, an assurance of things hoped for. This faith can then lead to a stronger kind of hope, a more mature hope, the confident expectation that the guide to the scripture describes, and which Moroni called in Ether chapter 12, verse 32, a more excellent hope. We begin with nascent hope, which comes into being when we exercise our agency to desire or long to believe. Once nascent hope is formed, we can then receive the spiritual assurance or confirmation that what we desire is true, which is the essence of faith. That confirmation of faith in turn creates a stronger, more excellent form of hope. Aaron's instruction to the king of the Lamanites in Alma chapter 22 seems to outline this kind of process. We read, Aaron told the king, If thou desirest and call on Christ's name in faith, believing, then shalt thou receive the hope which thou desirest. 
First, the king had to exercise his agency by desiring to believe, by choosing to hope that the joy and blessings about which Aaron had testified were really possible. He then needed to pray for spiritual confirmation. The spiritual assurance he received as a result of his prayer, which was faith, then engendered a deeper kind of hope, a more excellent hope. This is not a one-time linear process that we can perfect through a single event, but a repeating pattern which builds on itself. It is an iterative process in which faith and hope combine over and over to increase both our faith and our hope. As this process repeats itself, the lines between the two concepts grow faint. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell put it, faith and hope are constantly interactive and are not always easily or precisely distinguished. With this model in mind, it is important to remember that it is not faith in the abstract nor faith in general that turns our less developed nascent hope into the more mature, more durable, more excellent hope. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the constant exercise of faith in Christ that transforms what would otherwise be merely wishful thinking into the kind of hope that can become an anchor to our soul. We have to plant our desires, our hope in him. Because of his atoning sacrifice, Christ has the power to transform all our righteous desires into reality. Our role is to believe in him and his gospel and teachings enough that he can work with us, that we will allow him to shape our desires so that our will aligns with his. Thus, if we want to strengthen our hope, we must focus more on the Savior, especially when we feel hopeless. One of the simplest but most powerful ways we can do that is to follow his example by serving others. When we find ourselves struggling to find hope, we should reach out to someone in need, as the Savior constantly did. As we do so, our focus will shift from ourselves to others, and we will begin to have desires for their well-being. That hope can then be coupled with the assurance that Christ can help them, and that he can do so through us. This addition of faith to our righteous desires can transform our small, nascent hope into an enduring, powerful, more excellent form of hope that can change us and others. Christ-like service is often the seedbed of hope on both sides of faith. Thus, just as Christ is the author and finisher of our faith, he is also the author and finisher of our hope. While we all ultimately want to develop the more excellent hope that comes from exercising faith in Christ, we should not ignore or underestimate the power and importance of the less mature, less developed form of hope I've called nascent hope. Such budding hope is important both because it is the indispensable first step in the process and because at times it is all we can muster. There will be times, maybe even in the year to come, when the gap between where we are and where we want to be seems so vast as to be unbridgeable. When our hope is so small that it appears to be of no significance. In those moments when it feels like all we can do is hang on to the last shred of hope we have, please be assured that that can be enough. This is illustrated, literally, by a painting by the 19th century English artist George Watts. 
The painting is entitled Hope. Prior to Watts' painting, illustrations of hope typically featured a lively young woman holding a flower or an acre. Watts' portrayal of hope departed from that norm. Watts himself described the painting as, quote, hope, sitting on a globe with bandaged eyes, playing on a small harp which has all the strings broken but one, out of which she is trying to get all the music possible, listening with all her might to the little sound, close quote. She appears to be exhausted, worn out. She is seemingly barely holding on. And yet, she is holding on, trying her best to get music from what she has left, one single string. Now, Watts painted the picture shortly after his young granddaughter passed away, which may account for his less glorified portrayal of hope. While his exact intended message is somewhat ambiguous and still somewhat debated today, the positive impact of the picture has been widespread. One of Watts' biographers wrote of a poor girl, character broken and heartbroken, wandering about the streets of London with a growing feeling that nothing good remained. But seeing a photograph of Hope, she used the last of her money to buy the photograph and looked at it every day. As she did, the message of Hope sank into her soul, and she fought her way back to a life of purity and honor. In the early years of the 20th century, prints of the painting circulated widely, President Theodore Roosevelt displayed a copy at his home in New York. Decades later, Martin Luther King referred to the painting in his Shattered Dream speech, noting that it was an imaginative portrayal of the truth that we will all face the agony of blasted hopes and shattered dreams, and reinforcing his main point that, quote, in the final analysis, our ability to deal creatively with shattered dreams and blasted hopes will be determined by the extent of our faith in God. Close quote. As Watts' portrait of hope demonstrates, there is more power in our desires than we may think. In the long run, our desires will determine our destiny. While it may not seem like much, the smallest form of hope, the smallest desire to believe, can be the first step in a miraculous process through which God can exalt us. So, if at times you can't really see very clearly or Really not at all. If you can play only one note, and that note sounds out of tune, if all you can do is hang on to one thread and hope it holds, then hang on and hope. That will be enough to start the process. If you then turn to the Savior and sincerely ask for his help, he will take what little you have to offer and turn it into magnificent, exalting hope which can be an anchor to your soul. As we begin this new school year, let me conclude by sharing four of my hopes for you in the coming year. First, I hope each of you stays safe and healthy. Second, I hope each of you discovers, or in some cases rediscovers, the joy of discovery. That you more fully experience the enlightenment and energy that comes from learning truth through study and faith. As hard as it may be to believe at times, learning can be an exhilarating, edifying experience, even when or maybe especially when it is exhausting. It can be joyful, particularly when it is facilitated by the Holy Ghost. Third, 
I hope each of you feels fully a part of the BYU community, that every one of you will feel you belong here at BYU. As I mentioned at the recent university conference, I hope that we can each develop a loving, genuine concern for the welfare of all of God's children, regardless of their race, gender, sexual orientation, or other distinguishing feature, each of which is secondary to our common identity as beloved spirit children of heavenly parents. I hope we can learn to have difficult conversations without being difficult, because those kinds of conversations held in love will be necessary if we are to be a true Zion community. Fourth, and most important, I hope that in the coming year, each of you can feel in greater measure God's love for you individually. At those times when you wonder if there is any reason to hope, when you wonder if anyone cares or if anyone should care, I invite you to ask God what he thinks of you, what he really thinks of you. I know that can seem to be a frightening endeavor since you know that he knows better than anyone all your faults. But if you are truly sincere, you will be pleasantly surprised by his response because he loves you much more than you can imagine. You may feel that you do not have enough hope to generate faith, but I can assure you that he has enough love to let you feel his charity. His love for you is perfect. Not because you are perfect, and not because you got admitted to BYU, and not because you aced the test, and not because your parents are proud of you, but because you are you, and you are his. If you feel that love more fully, you will find more hope in every circumstance and in all you do. My greatest hope for you is that you experience that kind of hope through God's love in this coming year. That you may do so is my prayer for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Hope Expels Fear, with thoughts from Jeffrey R. Holland and Kevin J. Worthen. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.